What's going on, everybody? This is Athena, and you're here for the one-year special anniversary edition of Vanished in the Valley. This episode's gonna be mostly focused on quote-unquote conspiracy theories. I'm gonna tell you about how Pfizer has cooked the books to make everyone believe this fucked-up vaccine for the Rona is 95% effective. I'm also going to tell you about how our recall Gavin Newsom petition signing went, and I'm going to tell you about the origins of the dark net. I might have a little couple side rants going on because, you know, I just can't help myself. So sit back, relax, and get ready for all this shit. Okay, so let's start with how last Saturday... Me and Garrett went to the Home Depot parking lot in Manteca, California, and had a little recall Gavin Newsom petition signing. Now, I had racists on Instagram telling me that only toothless hillbillies would come and sign. I had other people saying that you don't even know why you want him recalled. Just basically the, the normal bullshit, saying you're just a Trump supporter, all just the typical shit you would expect people to throw at someone that wants to get Gavin Newsom recalled. So if you go online and read stories about why this recall is going on, you're going to get a lot of different answers from different media outlets. Some say it's because of the way he handles immigration. Some say it's because of the way he's handled the coronavirus. Some say it's because of his little French laundry debacle with the California Medical Association lobbyists. Well, let me just go over some shit that Gavin Newsom has totally failed at. First of all, our housing is ridiculous. It's unattainable and it's making the homeless population explode. The crime is rising. As you just heard in my last podcast, Ken's stepdaughter was shot and murdered on a freeway in Richmond, and she's just one of many Californians that have been murdered or had some type of violence directed at them. The schools are failing. Independent contractors have been thrown out of work. There's exploding pension debt. And, you know, he said that he's going to stop the lockdowns, but I still can't go sit in a restaurant and have some food. But he could at French Laundry. And there's just a lot of other reasons. For me, he's a fucking hypocrite. He was put into his place of power because he's Nancy Pelosi's nephew. His daddy backed the old governor, Governor Brown. It's nepotism. He's only in his position because of money and nepotism and a bunch of gullible Californians that believed his hype. If you go on his Instagram, it's basically a bunch of white broads and gay dudes that love this guy and defend him to the end. And it's probably because people think he's a good-looking, charismatic guy. But if you could just, like, look past that little facade, this motherfucker has got some evil-ass vibes going on. He doesn't give a shit about California. He doesn't give a shit about Californians. He cares about power. It's like as soon as Joe Biden became president, now we can end the lockdowns. Even though this quote-unquote curve has not been crushed, the fucking hospital beds are actually 
more taken up than when he started this ridiculous lockdown that was supposed to last two weeks. So basically, he's just failing. He's a terrible governor. He was a terrible mayor of San Francisco. And come on, he's giving $125 million of stimulus relief to illegal immigrants that don't have to show any type of identification. Where the fuck do you think that money comes from? Taxes, me and you. I'm literally paying like $600 a paycheck in taxes that Gavman just gets to go throw around and hand out to people that probably haven't even paid into the system. Fuck all that shit. Now, having said that, let's get one thing clear. I have no problem helping Americans that need help. So my whole thinking on it, help the fucking American citizens first and then look around to see who you can help. But he's not even starting with the American citizens. Fucking let's pay illegal immigrants $125 million in stimulus funds? Fuck that. Help these people that are becoming homeless. Help these people that are losing their businesses. And then start looking at other people. So, yeah, let's get back to the <laughs> let's get back to the recall I had this last weekend. So before me and Garrett had even got anything set up, we had our first two signers. We got over 50 people in less than four hours. We didn't have to go up to anybody. They came up to us. We literally sat the table up and just sat down in a chair and fucking chilled. Then people started coming up to us. And most of them had the same complaints as we did. He's destroyed our economy. California is basically unlivable at this point if you're in the middle class. He's fucking made Tesla flee. I mean, what what else has to be shown? This guy has no idea what he's doing, and he's making California worse off than when he started. I keep hearing all these liberals say, every other state is suffering too. Well, they might be suffering, but they're not suffering as bad as California is. That's why all these industries like Tesla are fleeing the state. So there's just a lot of reasons. If you look into the fuckery of Gavin Newsom, it's just like endless. I could sit here and make 17 episodes about the fuckery of Gavin Newsom if I actually wanted to, but I don't. You guys look into it, go online and go to recallgavin2020.com. What you actually have to do is print a petition and make sure you write your county in the upper right hand corner, your name, sign it, write your address. The address has to be the same address that you're registered to vote in and then just mail it into the address that they provide. It cannot be done over the internet. So as of right now, we're over 1.3 million signatures, and we only need to get basically 12% of the population of California, which is 1.49 million people. So we're super fucking close. It all has to be done and in by March 17th for there to be a special election held and this motherfucker to get recalled. So like I said, go check out recallgavin2020.com and print out the petition and get it sent in. And just one more little side note about Gavman. Okay, so he may have like opened up some restaurants to a degree, but he literally made a mandate that they can't have the TVs on inside. I'm like, really, Gavin? What fucking science told you that the TVs can't be on? And he's also saying he will not release the data the state used to determine what type of lockdowns and when we should lock down. 
I'm like, really? Are we a free fucking state? You're not going to provide the information you and your cronies used to lock down millions of Californians? How does that even fucking make sense? I'm just at the point where I literally believe his supporters have just swallowed so much Gav Kool-Aid that they can't even fucking see straight. So again, guys, get this petition signed. If I decide to hold another petition, I'll let you guys know where and when we will be at. I just want this motherfucker out of office. Let's do it. So now we're going to move on to a little bit more government fuckery. But this government fuckery has to do with the dark web. Have you ever wondered, like, who created it? Where did it come from? Have you guys ever even been on the dark net? It can be a really fucking scary place. So what I'm going to do now is just kind of tell you the history and how the dark web was developed. And some of the nefarious ways it has been used over the years. In the 1990s, the lack of security on the internet and its ability to be used for tracking and surveillance was becoming clear. So... In 1995, David Goldschlag, Mike Reed, and Paul Syverson at the U.S. Naval Research Lab asked themselves if there was a way to create an internet connection that does not reveal who is talking to whom and even someone monitoring their network. Their answer was to create and deploy the first research designs and prototypes of onion routing. The Onion Router Project, also known as TOR, wasn't started with the aim of creating a hidden corner of the World Wide Web. The actual aim of TOR was to allow secret agents and dissidents friendly to America and other countries to communicate with each other without the risk of their conversations, origins, and destinations being intercepted and tracked. Because obviously that would be all bad. Get their asses murdered or some shit. However, People and criminals soon realized it could be used to obscure any online communication and action. Hmm, I wonder what criminals and people are going to do with this technology. Well, let's get there. So let's start kind of what the point of onion routing is. They kind of wanted to have as much privacy as possible, and the whole idea was to route traffic through multiple servers and encrypt it each step of the way, basically making it impossible for someone to be tracked. The Tor project was made available to the public in 2004, but the idea of onion routing began in the mid-1990s. Tor actually gained popularity in the mid-2000s, but it remained kind of out of reach or difficult Unless you basically hell them knew what you were doing with computers. You had to be super tech savvy to even get the basics of it. I mean, most people back then weren't even thinking about how to hide their fucking whereabouts. They're thinking of America online and that kind of shit. So the dark web basically became more accessible with Tor and the browser was developed in 2008. With the Tor browser having made Tor more accessible to everyday layman, internet users, and activists, Tor was instrumental tool during the Arab Spring beginning in late 2010. It not only protected people's identity online, but it also allowed them to access critical resources, social media, and websites which were usually blocked out by their government. Their free speech was being suppressed, 
free idea exchange was being suppressed, and they found a way around it. Where there's a will, there's a way, guys. So the need for tools safeguarding against mass surveillance became a mainstream concern thanks to Snowden revelations in 2013. Not only was Tor instrumental to Snowden's whistleblowing, but the content of the documents also upheld the assurances that, at the time, Tor could not be cracked. That's not to say today Tor can't be cracked, but back in the day, it definitely could not. So, basically, Tor was created by the Navy to have a network where they could secretly communicate with other nations. But, as I said, eventually criminals and regular people got their hands on it. I'm sure you guys have heard of, like, the Silk Road and all the drug trafficking. And I'm sure you heard about that whole debacle with the hitman for hire. Now, I haven't been on the dark web for a while, but... I was on Silk Road, and you could literally buy kilos of cocaine. You could buy heroin from Afghanistan. You could buy pounds of fentanyl from Wuhan, China. Anything you wanted was on there. And it was literally like the eBay of a drug market. The sellers had ratings. People would literally write reviews on them. And you could find anything from pharmaceutical drugs, like shit the government and doctors are pushing on people, like Vicodin, Oxycontin, Percocet, that kind of shit. And they were very comparable to street prices. So, of course, all of that shit, onion style, uh, Silk Road style, was eventually taken down. And I'm going to tell you kind of a little condensed story of how. Silk Road was taken down. So Ross Oltbright was born in Austin, Texas, and he held a degree in physics from the University of Texas and a master's in engineering from Pennsylvania State University. He held libertarian views about the world, reading Ayn Rand and being a self-identified supporter of U.S. presidential candidate Ron Paul. Hey, Ron Paul, what's up? Liberty Report, check it out. He was skeptical about governmental authority and questioned the legitimacy of effectiveness of the U.S. war on drugs, which, if you look into it, is a fucking scam. But back to the dark net. After graduation, Ulbricht was a research assistant in his alma mater, later having decided that he did not want to become a full-time scientist. He tried his hand at a number of startups, including an online bookstore. However, he became disillusioned with his attempts to become a successful entrepreneur, and like many other computer programmers of his age and ability, he headed towards Silicon Valley to create up a startup like no other. So he decided to name it after the historical trade route and network that connected Europe and Asia, the Silk Road. He founded Silk Road on the basis of a modest principle, making the world a better place. According to his LinkedIn profile, Ulbricht wanted to use the economic theory as a means to abolish the use of coercion and aggression among mankind. Silk Road was designed to be a free market, a market whose very existence would be outside the scope of the government control, thereby undermining the very fabric of the state. And you know government motherfuckers are not gonna like that. They want every taxable dime in their coffers. Ulbricht's ideology was that the users of Silk Road were going to be enabled 
with the means to decide for themselves what substances they wanted to put into their bodies without having to resort to dealing with dangerous drug gangs or falling foul of the government authorities. Similar to eBay, like I just said. <laughs> it would match buyers and sellers, allow users to rate each other, and provide for listed products to be delivered directly to customers' doors by the unsuspecting postal service. So it operated as a tour, hidden service. Communications on Silk Road were considered by users to be almost entirely anonymous. In addition, transactions on Silk Road could only be made using Bitcoin, which, although not entirely anonymous, offered a level of anonymity far greater than any other form of currency or credit card transactions. So according to Ulbricht's outlook, when setting up the site, listings on Silk Road were to be restricted to products that resulted in quote-unquote victimless crimes. So on that basis, listings related to the likes of child pornography, stolen credit cards, assassinations, weapons of mass destruction were totally banned. And indeed, if you checked out a survey of the site in early 2013, it suggests that up to 70% of the products listed on the website were drugs. However, despite creating terms of service that were more prohibitive than other dark web service markets, Ulbricht became unwilling or unable to maintain those standards that he had initially set, and indeed had relaxed the policy on banning the sale of weapons based upon a view that increased firearm regulations were making it harder for people to purchase guns, in contrast with his libertarian values. Furthermore, as the site evolved, more and more quote-unquote contraband products began to be listed. So, <laughs> as you can see, he's almost kind of creating a monster at this point. Silk Road was not the only drug marketplace by far. The thing that Silk Road kind of had over the competitors was people trusted Silk Road. They knew that if they put their Bitcoin into escrow, they were actually going to get their product. They knew they could trust this site to actually deliver the products they said that we were going to deliver. So that basically was what made Albright $28 million by the time of his arrest. It's estimated that over $1 billion changed hands through Silk Road. So basically this site operated for a couple of years. The authorities were totally aware of it within the few months of its launch, but it took over two years for Albright's identity to be revealed. Two U.S. senators had publicly denounced the site, and they asked the DEA to seize the Silk Road's domain name. But, as per usual, it was slow to progress. With authorities having to attempt to infiltrate the network, track down the suppliers and the administrators, none of whom had ever got close enough to Albright to learn his real name, and painstakingly piece together the tiny pieces of the puzzle that were able to work with. However, after many years of diligent work, the FBI finally caught up with Albright. One October afternoon in a public library in San Francisco, Ross Albright's dream of an online libertarian paradise came to a sudden end. The FBI had finally infiltrated Silk Road by flipping many of Albright's closest associates and using their identities to gradually unravel the Silk Road network. So, 
Nothing's ever 100% secure, you guys. Nothing. The final connection was made between Silk Road and Ulbright when a simple Google search connected the dread pirate Roberts with another alias called Altoid. That was the early promoter of Silk Road on another drug forum. That alias was traced through the internet to a Bitcoin forum while Ulbright had posted his personal email address. So... He was basically caught red-handed, guys. He was actually logged into Silk Road as an administrator and using his dread pirate Roberts alias to unknowingly communicate with an undercover FBI agent. When the agents actually took his laptop, they found millions of dollars of Bitcoin on it, with millions of more stored on USB drives found in his apartment. The computer also contained his private journal, which contained damning evidence against him. So, within hours of his arrest, the Silk Road's domain had been seized. The market was shut down, and his grand plans to make the world a better place were in disarray. Now, I'm sure you guys also heard about the whole hiring a hitman attempted murder thing that was associated with Albright. So, I mean, we're not going to get super into detail with that whole thing, but basically, so as the FBI had been searching for Albright, they caught up with a whole bunch of other administrators that at one point had been forced to reveal their true identity to Albright. That was basically the terms of becoming a moderator for the Silk Road. One of these administrators' name was Curtis Green. And he had actually been arrested by the FBI. And Ulbright was kind of afraid that Green was going to be able to give the FBI enough information to find out his true identity. So what does he do? He hires an informant named Knob, <laughs> who he thought was just another administrator, but was actually a DEA agent to kill Curtis Green. For the price of $40,000, this fake administrator, Knob, who was actually DEA agent Carl Force, faked the murder and charged the $40,000 and brought the proof of murder to Albright. Albright ultimately did express remorse for what had happened, but agreed that it was necessary. Apparently, he had made other attempts, including hiring a member of the Hells Angels to kill a Silk Road user that was blackmailing him by threatening to hack the website using a denial-of-service attack. They ended up dropping the attempted murder charges, but he was convicted of money laundering, computer hacking, drug trafficking, and check this out he was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So, the dark web has completely gotten out of the government's control. It seems like every time the government creates some organization or program to either help the people or make things a little bit easier, how does it always get so fucked up and out of control? I, I just don't know if it's fucked from the beginning because of bad planning? Is it because the people involved are just bad people? I mean, I'm sure we could debate about it for hours, the reasons why all the programs just go to shit. So that is the story of the dark web and Silk Road. Today, it's still there. Child pornographers use it. Drug traffickers use it. It's used for a lot of things. And like I said earlier, 
it's a very scary place. So you got to use your big boy panties, big girl panties, if you're going to go fuck around on the dark web. Okay, so now we're going to change gears a little bit, and I'm going to tell you about the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, by December 18th, 2020, 112,807 Americans had received their first dose of the COVID vaccine. Of those, 3,150 suffered one or more quote-unquote health impact events defined as being unable to perform normal daily activities, unable to work, or required care from a doctor slash healthcare professional. So ready for some numbers. I know you guys love fucking numbers. That gives us a side effect rate of 2.79%. So let's tank that to the whole population of the U.S. So the U.S. population of 328.2 million, we can expect that 9,156,780 Americans would be injured by the vaccine if every single man, woman, and child is vaccinated. Now, as of right now, only about 455,000 Americans have actually died from the coronavirus, with what 99.9% of those being hell of old or having two or more comorbidities. So I looked into this, you guys, and apparently what is happening with the Pfizer data is they're kind of cooking the books. They're fucking around with numbers and making it look like this vaccine is 90% effective and the relative risk is low. But the problem is Big Pharma is pulling some tricks. They're confusing absolute and relative risks, which are two completely different things. I'm going to try to keep it simple. I'm going to try to keep the jargon out of this. But let me just kind of read you what their little press release statement was. So Moderna's press release states that 9% experienced grade 3 myalgia, 10% grade 3 fatigue. Pfizer's statement reported 3.8% experienced grade 3 fatigue and 2% grade 3 headache. So grade 3 adverse events are considered severe defined as preventing daily activity. Mild and moderate severity reactions are bound to be far more common. So, if you delve into recent released summary data given to the FDA, while some of the additional details are reassuring, some are not. And this is according to BMJ opinion, Peter Dashi. He's the associate editor of the BMJ. So, according to him, his article outlines yet an additional concern about the trustworthiness and meaningfulness of the reported efficacy results of the two vaccines based on their data. He starts with the point that Pfizer did not consistently confirm whether test subjects who showed symptoms of COVID were actually PCR positive. Instead, a large portion were just simply marked as suspected COVID. So, I mean, if you're not actually testing these people and making sure they have a disease, how can we even trust their numbers? In all 3,410 cases of quote-unquote suspected but not confirmed COVID, in the total study population, and that's the vaccine group and controls, 1,594 of which occurred in the vaccine group, 
Only eight cases in the vaccine group were actually confirmed with PCR testing. So the problem with this is that 95% effectiveness rating is based on PCR confirmed cases only. Right there, you guys, the numbers are skewed. They're completely off. So what it appears is the trials were not designed to assess whether the vaccine prevents transmission of infection. Since they don't do an analysis of severe disease irrespective of etiological agent, namely rates of hospitalizations, ICU cases, and deaths among trial participants, it seems warranted and is the only way to assess the vaccine's real ability to take the edge off the pandemic. Another concern brought forth in Dashi's article is the exclusion of 371 participants from Pfizer's efficacy analysis due to quote-unquote important protocol deviations on or prior seven days after dose two. So of those, 311 were from the vaccine group, while only 60 were in the placebo group. This marked imbalance is a huge cause for concern. Why were five times as many in the vaccine group excluded from the efficacy analysis than in the placebo group? And what exactly were the protocol deviations that caused them to be excluded? This is literally called stacking the deck, so the results can be manipulated to the desired direction to prove effectiveness. I just don't even know. Their data literally shows that they are stacking the deck to lie to the public about this 95% efficacy. Day after day, I'm reading about senators, media motherfuckers that have gotten both doses yet are testing positive for COVID. What is going on? So I think I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't take the flu shot. There is no way in hell I'm taking a rushed ass vaccine that has fake numbers and the FDA has accepted these fake numbers and these companies have lied to the public about their 95% efficacy. What else are they lying about? So if you decide to go get the vaccine, I wish you luck. I hope you don't get sick. But Fuck, man, really think about what you're doing before you take that vaccine. Some of the side effects I've seen are fucking horrific. So, guys, that about wraps up our one-year anniversary Vanish in the Valley show. I want to thank all of our listeners, all of our downloaders, all of the people that come say what's up to me and give me different show ideas and just bullshit about the stuff I post on Instagram. I truly appreciate it. And I also want to thank all of the producers that helped us out last year to pay the bills just to get this production up. I so appreciate it. I don't want to have to run commercials where go check out this website and type in Vanish in the Valley for your discount code. I don't want to do that, but you know, we'll see what happens. So you guys, like I've always told you, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.